Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Throughout August, we're plundering our archives to bring you some of the best interviews from Series 1 of the podcast. This week's interview was recorded a year ago in August 2021. I'm talking to Dr. Carey Lunan, a GP in Edinburgh and chair of the Deep End GP Group in Scotland, and Dr. David Blaine, a GP in Glasgow and clinical research fellow in general practice at the University of Glasgow, who's the academic lead of the Deep End GP Group. The Deep End Group covers the 100 most deprived practices in Scotland, and the discussion highlights what the group is doing to tackle health inequalities, the impact of COVID-19, and what other practices can learn from their work. So I'm joined now by Dr. Carrie Lunan, a GP in Edinburgh and chair of the Scottish Deep End Project, and Dr. David Blaine, a GP in Glasgow and clinical research fellow in general practice at the University of Glasgow, who's the academic lead of the Scottish Deep End Project. Firstly, um, David, maybe I could start with you. Lots of people will have heard of the Deep End Project, but for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what it is, could you explain a little bit about what it is and how it came about? Sure. Yeah. So the Deep End group of of GPs is the uh, 100 practices in Scotland who serve communities with the most concentrated economic disadvantage. Um, And we use a measure called the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation. And we know all practices in Scotland, there's roughly a thousand of them. What percentage of the practice patient list, the patient population, live in the 15% most deprived SIMD postcodes. So that, that was the initial cutoff. So roughly hundred of, of the almost a thousand practices. So roughly 10% of the most deprived practices, if, if you like, in Scotland. The Deep End GP group uh, was formed in 2009. Uh, and it was the first time in the history of the NHS and indeed any health service that, that we're aware of where uh, frontline practitioners working in areas of concentrated economic disadvantage were, were brought together, were convened and, and consulted. Um, and it was a real breath of fresh air for many GPs who'd previously been working in, in glorious isolation to, to meet with other GPs who, who are facing similar challenges. Um, we see a, a range of, of health and, and social problems which tend to start earlier in life we talk about people with multiple long-term health problems or multimorbidity, uh, and the onset of multimorbidity is roughly 10 to 15 years earlier in, in the most deprived decile versus the, the, the least deprived, the most affluent. Um, but within that, there's, there, there's a range of issues related to addictions, mental health problems, child protection, uh, vulnerable adults, migrant health, also much more common in, in the deep end. Um, the impact of childhood and, and adult adversity as, as well. All of these practices, you say, are in deprived communities and you've both chosen to work in those areas. Could you both explain a bit about why you chose that career path? I mean, maybe, Carrie, you could start with that one. Thanks, Emma. I think uh, for me, it was this, the sense that being a GP in a deprived community conferred a real possibility of making a difference to people's lives. We can make a difference to people's lives across all sectors of society, of course, but I've found, having worked in lots of different practices, but largely in the most deprived practices, that we have an exceptional potential at working in areas of deprivation, and that's to do with being able to work alongside individuals, with families, with communities, particularly um, over long periods of time and multiple conversations, building up relationships of trust. 
and having a key role around sort of coordinating care and advocacy, which is something that I feel very passionately about and is one of the reasons that I chose it to become a GP. I think as well, it feels like working in areas of deprivation is very much aligned to the founding principles of the NHS. And I've also found that working in areas of deprivation, I've tended to really enjoy the colleagues that I find myself working alongside. I think it's often a career that is very much chosen and, and often we come to, to work in those places with similar values and that makes the job feel even more worthwhile and more manageable when things get difficult. Yeah, and how about you, David? Is it similar sort of reasons for you? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with Carrie. I think um, you know, my, my idea of the NHS is, is as being part of that wider um, social safety net. We very much ascribe to uh, the idea of Michael Marmot's of proportionate universalism, where we have universal services, but they're they're proportionate to where needs are greatest. And and one of the um, maxims of the Deep End Group is that the NHS should be at its best where it's needed most. Um, and, and and I think that's what draws many of our colleagues to to, to work in, in these areas. Could you talk a bit about some of the initiatives that Deep End practices have set up? What they're trying to do and how they're trying to tackle health inequalities, and you know whether practices work collaboratively or on their own in those sorts of things. There have been a range of different um, projects. Probably the most notable ones are the community links worker or, or links practitioner uh, project, the financial advice project. They started off as small pilot projects in uh, a handful of deep end practices and uh, were, were found to be beneficial. Uh, certainly that was the, 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 the feeling amongst the practitioners. The evaluations were um, reasonably positive and, and certainly positive enough that the Scottish government felt that they, they, they were worth, um, worth rolling out. So the community links worker is the, is the idea that, um, that primary care can be uh, a hub of local health and, and, and social care um, and can connect better with existing assets and resources within communities. Um, but oftentimes GPs either don't have the time or, or, or the awareness of what's going on. Um, and also it's not necessarily within the best use of their time. Um, so having a links worker in a practice as part of the practice team uh, enables um, connections with community resources for health and well-being to be made and enables a, a direct link built, building up relationships with individual patients, building their confidence, perhaps um, helping them overcome, uh, you know, other barriers to actually engage with those resources. Um, so that, that that's the links approach. Uh, the financial advice worker approach, again, recognizing that many of the uh, problems that present to us in general practice have at their heart issues related to, to poverty or debt or housing um, and, and all the stress, understandable stress that goes along with that. Um, and that actually uh, addressing some of those issues uh, can can be helpful for, for people's health and well-being as well. Perhaps you could also explain a bit about the re what the research is telling you about sort of the impact that some of these initiatives are having. Are there any specific projects that have made like a really big difference? I think the, the research is, is complex in these areas it's um because often the the benefits particularly in terms of um patient outcomes are are quite hard to measure in short time scales um i mean what what i would say probably the the one 
that is um, sort of produced the, the strongest evidence was the CARE Plus study, which was uh, led by Professor Stuart Mercer in Glasgow, uh, working in deep end practices. And it was uh, an intervention to support people with multiple long-term conditions, multimorbidity, um, and that involved uh, various elements. There was elements to do with um, having longer consultations for complex patients. Um, there was elements to do with practice team training um, and support. Uh, and that did show uh, positive patient level outcomes um, improvements in, in, in quality of life, or at least the, the decline was slower in the intervention practices compared to the control practices. And it was cost effective. So what sort of things are you trying to measure or track to see if it makes a difference? I, th I think that varies um, typically taking care plus as an example, you know, the, 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 the measures that they were looking at were things like quality of life or um, patient enablement um, you know, the extent to which at the end of a consultation, people feel able to manage their, their health problems. Um, they also looked at uh, practitioner empathy, which I think is, is a key component here. Um, we, we know from other research that uh, practitioner empathy is uh, a, almost a prerequisite for enablement. Um, but often in, in deep end practices, uh, GP stress levels are higher. Um, and that has an impact on, on empathy levels. Um, and that's part of the argument for uh, more resources is, 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 is because then that, that has a direct impact on practitioner and team well-being. So if a project is funded for a short period of time, it's very difficult to then measure the long-term impact of that project. So we can tell from you know, initial evaluations that the outcomes look good, but what we need to know is what happens over five years, over 10 years, over 15 years, over 20 years. Um, and so we need to ideally be moving away from pilot funding to sustainable long-term funding, which is one of the challenges that, you know, that we're, we're trying to address um, in, in the longer term. And if we look at things like another of the, um, of the Deep End projects, which is the Governship project, which brought together health and social care and other key stakeholders to case manage and, and care plan for patients with the most complex healthcare needs by creating more time within the working day to do that, bringing together different IT systems, um, freeing up some time for GPs to have more of a leadership role. Then we began to see reduction in, in house visiting rates and in, in ED attendance and improvements in recruitment and retention. These are all things that are difficult to measure in a very short term project, but are very exciting to look at. Um, I would add, add to that um, one of the inspirations for many of us within the, the Deep End project has been the example of Julian Tudor Hart and we um, celebrated 50 years of the inverse care law, his Lancet paper from 1971. But what Tudor Hart demonstrated in, in his work was a 30% reduction in, in mortality uh, amongst his patients compared to a, 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 a similar practice in, in a neighbouring Welsh valley. Um, and that was partly done through proactive care, through anticipatory care, but, but his means of doing that was through building relationships and working with patients in, and the community, um, as he said, initially face-to-face, -face, eventually side-by-side.
Obviously, the last 18 months, you know, health inequalities have really come to the fore. Poorer communities and black and minority ethnic communities have been sort of disproportionately affected by COVID-19. I was just wondering, how, how has it affected your practices and your patients? I think it has just really highlighted that my poverty pre-COVID are, are really struggling now, and not just from the effects of COVID itself, but also from the secondary harms in terms of the economic consequences and the social consequences as well. And I guess what we saw quite early on in the pandemic was that the, the rates of serious illness and death within more deprived communities and certain ethnic minority communities were more than twice as high as they were in the most affluent parts of the country. And this was perhaps not surprising, but also very, very concerning. And lots of reasons for that. I think more of our patients tend to be in frontline jobs um, they also have less ability to follow guidance around self-isolation because they don't necessarily have the accommodation that facilitates that or the access to green spaces or the financial security that allows them not to work. Um, I think also poorer underlying health, as David mentioned at the start, you know, developing the diseases of old age 10 to 15 years earlier in the most deprived uh, communities means that they've got a lower baseline to start with and so more vulnerable the effects of COVID if they do catch it. Um, but also what we're beginning to see as well since vaccine rollout at the start of the year is lower vaccine uptake in more deprived communities and certain ethnic minority groups. So there's almost a triple whammy in terms of the direct COVID effects there. Um, so I think you know we've we've been acutely aware as, as frontline workers of how difficult it has been for many of our patients in terms of being able to shield or keeping themselves safe. Um, and it's been a very humbling, I think, certainly speaking to a lot of patients on the phone about how resilient they have managed to be and how they've managed to cope in exceptionally difficult circumstances. Um, it's also had a huge impact on the on the amount of mental health presentations that we've had coming into the practice over the last 16 months or so. That has always been a very big part of our workload, but it's it's a very, very big part of our workload now. Uh, just a, another point to, to flag is that when there is, when there are higher levels of premature deaths, in this case related to COVID, then you have higher levels of um, bereaved families as, as, as well, and, and there's there's the fallout from that, and particularly I suppose the psychological fallout of of perhaps not being able to have the sort of funeral that that you would have wanted for for your loved ones because of COVID restrictions as well. As you've talked about, you know, every practice will have a certain degree of health inequalities or people who are, are struggling more. And obviously some practices will have more than others. But how can GPs sort of start tackling some of these issues, you know, particularly when they're so busy at the moment or practices, practice teams as a whole, um, when many of these problems are quite entrenched? Where would should practices start to look to make changes, do you think? So I think you're... You're absolutely right. This is a thorny, tricky problem that can feel very easily overwhelming and I think can often feel like, you know, this isn't what we train to do. This isn't part of our role. This isn't, you know, something that we can have any influence over. Um, so I think it becomes really important to have some specific examples and some achievable um, ideas about what we can do so that we feel empowered as, as GPs and teams to be able to address health inequalities where we can with individual patients and within our communities. So I've, I've thought about this quite a lot and I think that probably the practical ideas fall into three main areas. One is how we design and run our practice systems. 
Uh, one is how we build and train our teams, and one is how we can engage and influence more widely. And so maybe just sort of drilling down into those a little bit. Um, in terms of how we design and run our practice teams, I think anything that makes our practice easy to uh, be a part of and stay within. So um, thinking about our registration processes and our DNA policies and making sure that they are compassionate and that we only exclude in very exceptional circumstances and do everything that we can to keep patients in relationship with us would be an example. Other ways would be thinking about how do we mitigate digital exclusion. And I think particularly during COVID-19 where we've had to become remote by default there's a huge potential to worsen the inverse care law and health inequality. So we need to be able to be flexible with our appointment system when it's possible to do that. And it's important to do that. Then thinking about how we build and train our teams. So I think nothing beats an informed workforce um, who are all signed up to the same way of delivering care. So having an awareness of what health inequalities means and what is the impact of early years trauma um, and there are some fantastic resources available on the Finding Fair Health website and also just building the team based on the evidence base. So thinking about whether you can have a financial advisor in your in your building, mental health worker, an addiction worker, a community links practitioner, because they've all been shown to improve outcomes. And then thinking about is there practice based projects that we could do for quality improvement? And then I think the third area is thinking about how can we get involved in wider engagement and advocacy? And, and some of us will feel more able to do this than others, but um, we can get involved in um, advocacy at a very local level. So get involved in community engagement events, or if you have a patient participation group, or if you don't, thinking about what that might look like, um, get political. So work through your professional bodies, think about um, and ask specifically um, the colleges, the Royal College of Nursing, the RCGP, the BMA, what are you doing around health inequalities and how can I be involved? Think about who you vote for. And this is getting big picture now, but you know the importance of keeping the NHS public is included in the statement on the inverse care law and then challenge it when you hear or see discrimination in the language that you hear spoken or in the way that systems that you work in are designed or delivered. So there's lots of different ways that we can do it. Um, and I think sometimes it's just about having some examples that we can that we can pull off the peg and maybe just picking one or two um, over the course of a year and building on that and seeing how that feels. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another interview from the archives and we're back with new podcasts from the 9th of September. Don't forget, you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice and access a host of other resources at gponline.com. 